Greetings, fellow Whogazers, and welcome back to Doctor Who Literature, the podcast taking you through the world of the target novelizations in publication order. My name is Jason, and I'm your host on this journey, this very long journey. There's a lot of Doctor Who news on the audio front this week. Christopher Eccleston and Angelie Mohindra are going to be recording separate box sets for Big Finish. The Ninth Doctor, I believe, tying into the 60th anniversary. And Angelie for the Sarah Jane Adventures, now continuing on in audio format. Here on Doctor Who Literature, I opened the book this week for the first time in several years. And I found on the title page of Doctor Who and the Deadly Assassin a little illustration of the TARDIS that I must have drawn when I was 11 or 12 years old. It's not very good, but it's there, and of course it appears under my signature. You can find a photo of this up on my Twitter account a few days ago. When Conrad was on this show to discuss Doctor Who and the planet of the Daleks a couple of months ago, he talked about his illustrations. His illustrations are much better than mine, But the more important point is that I told him I had never drawn in my targets. Well, that was completely untrue. I'd totally forgotten about this. I would draw a much better TARDIS today. But I'm going to leave that shaky, lopsided, hand-drawn 11- or 12-year-old Jason TARDIS right where it belongs in my copy of the book. We've been getting some new listener emails here at Doctor Who Literature. That's drwholiterature at gmail. Very much enjoyed Denise's debut on the Literature Podcast today. Great podcast, both of you. Denise especially is a tough act to follow. I don't envy whoever your next guest is. And that's friend of the program, Mark, from the Trap One Podcast. Thanks for the email, Mark. I couldn't agree more. Coming up next, my interview with this week's guest, Mark, from the Trap One Podcast. Let's... Get to it. And we are very happy to welcome back to Doctor Who Literature for a record-tying fourth time, the godfather of this podcast, Mark from Trap One. Mark, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much for having me back. It's an honor as always. This is only the second time that I've recorded with you since you uh, came back from your trip to New York City. We have an episode of Trap One that we did, which I am Mm -hmm. still editing, and uh, now we have this episode here. What's it like adjusting back to life in the UK after your life-changing trip with the family <laughs> to, New York, to New York City? After, well, after, after readjusting to the jet lag, um, it's, it's just a lot quieter. <laughs> Where I live is, is much quieter. It's quite rural. So coming from, from New York, which is very vibrant and bustling and noisy all the time, um there's probably no buildings over about five stories in my city so it's uh, <laughs> it's smaller and quieter i was gonna say you told me an interesting fact when i was uh, meeting with you here in uh, the city that it takes you less time to fly to new york than it does to drive to london yeah yeah that'd be about right yeah <laughs> we don't go to london very often really um we, we it's, it's much nearer for us to go to uh, Edinburgh 
or Glasgow. So uh, if we're going to kind of a big city or to see a show or anything like that, we, we'd more likely to go to Edinburgh, which has just announced. I know you, you do a little news section at the start of this podcast. Uh, I'm not sure if you covered this because uh, it's pretty UK centric. But the Worlds of Wonder Doctor Who exhibition is relocating to Edinburgh in December after its residency in Liverpool. So um, I will uh, if I don't make it to Liverpool, I'll be visiting it in Edinburgh. I had not heard about that, but since we are only a couple of minutes into our interview and less than 10 minutes into the podcast, this can double as a uh, bonus breaking news segment. <laughs> it was in this one's Doctor Who came out yesterday. What's the motivation for doing that? What's the motivation for relocating further north uh, to Scotland rather than having it in Liverpool? Well, I think before, before the Doctor Who experience opened in Cardiff, they, the Doctor Who exhibitions in the UK would move around. I visited one in Newcastle, one in Glasgow, one in Blackpool, one in Manchester, and each of them would have slightly different props and costumes. Then once the Doctor Experience opened, it was this huge building in Cardiff, and it was the only show in town, really, if you wanted to to see any of the, uh, say any of the sets or props or the TARDISes or anything. So since that closed down, uh, be a few years ago now, maybe three or four years ago, definitely before the pandemic, there hasn't been any, um, so I'm pleased that now that they're they're back on the road, that they are moving around because it gives people uh, from different areas a chance to to see them. So, yeah, I think the first one is Liverpool, then it's in Edinburgh, I think from December till April, and then hopefully uh, moving on somewhere else. So, yeah, it's great that we don't have to travel to Cardiff anymore, which Cardiff's lovely, but it's it's uh, it's not handy for everybody. And people from other areas get to visit it who maybe aren't dedicated enough fans to travel all the way to Cardiff in the way that I did just to see um, a lot of Doctor Who stuff. I wonder if there is some inadvertent admission in that relocation because Cardiff was obviously the home base uh, for the show during uh, the long stretch um, of the first uh, 10 plus years of the new series. And then Liverpool, of course, was "quote unquote" the home base for the for the flux season. I'm wondering mm-hmm. if there's not going to be some Edinburgh connection to the show now that Shudi Gatwa, who is Scottish himself, is going to be playing the Doctor. Yeah, it could be. Um, it'd be interesting to see. Yeah, there's not many Edinburgh connections, is there? Didn't did the Doctor say? Is it the Moon Base? The Doctor says he got his doctorate in Edinburgh. You know, I can never remember that because I came to the Moon Base through the novelization first. And the novelization gives a different year and city for his doctorate than right. the TV show does. Like in one, it's in one it's Glasgow, and the other it's Edinburgh, and then in one it's eighteen seventy, and the other it's eighteen eighty eight. But I can no longer remember which is which. I've lost that kind of photographic memory as I get older. Yeah, I can't. I be equally familiar probably with both, and I, uh, Edinburgh sticks in my mind, but I can't remember which which one from. We we talked about a Doctor Who novel set in Edinburgh, didn't we? Um, it was Jonathan Morris. Uh, which one was it? It was. Oh, was that was that the was that the plague book? Yeah, um, I'm just scanning the shelf to to try and remind myself what it was called. It was called Plague City. Sorry, Plague City. Yes. We did a Trap 1 on that. That was very early days for me guesting on Trap 1. And uh, since you're busy Googling your shelf, I'm Googling Google. 
And according to the Moonbase transcript, the doctor's doctorate came from Glasgow in 1888 under Joseph Lister. So that means the book sets it to Edinburgh 1870, but that is not the on-screen canon. Right. And of course, nothing is less exciting than hearing two people use Google in the middle of a podcast, but there you go. <laughs> they probably just choose, chose Edinburgh because it's a big city then and uh, they'll, they'll get a lot of visitors. Right. Probably determined as well by a museum that's got enough floor space to uh, to fit a lot of Doctor Who props in. Right. I know at the back of the Who shop in London, there is a small Doctor Who museum, uh, which I was in with my kid in 2018, where they had, I think, I think in that little museum at the back of the store, and you have to pay extra to go in, and you have to actually walk through a police box prop to get in. So you've got to travel in the TARDIS to get to their back of shop museum. I think they had costumes from the story we're talking about today, which is the novelization Doctor Who and the Deadly Assassin. Yes. And uh, as you said, well, I pointed out, for once, we both have the same cover. But but uh, as you said, this is the only cover this book's ever had. Unless you count the blue spines. I never collected the blue spines, so someone else can tell me if there was a blue spine version of this. But I have the 1984 reprint the fifth edition which has the lyle stewart address on the back for the american audience but this is the original mike little cover from 1977 and which edition do you have again i have the 1977 first edition but what yours doesn't have mark is you do not have on the inside front cover my age 11 or 12 poorly drawn illustration of the tardis missing a few uh, door squares <laughs> And it was funny because I was. This was also deep in the phase when I was putting the story codes on the book. So I have the story code for this story written on the title page. You had a funny comment on Twitter. If you want to bring that up to our for our audience, right? Oh, so the, I didn't. I actually didn't really. I wasn't joking there. <laughs> I thought the uh, when it said four P, I thought it had uh, it had previously been a bargain in a like a maybe in a, a British um, charity shop or something. <laughs> No, it's actually a story code. And then I made a joke about my copy of Survival was much more expensive. It's 7P, which is the story code for Survival. Well, in my defense, it was about it was before 6 a.m. here. <laughs> so my brain wasn't <laughs> quite awake yet. <laughs> and I didn't realize it was a joke. <laughs> it is characteristic of your sense of humor that uh, a sort of pun like that would be the kind of joke you would tell. You have <laughs> recently been entertaining everybody on Twitter by taking just about every Doctor Who story ever and turning the title into a Carvanista slash dog pun. Yeah, I did as many as I could think of, and I think it lasted about two months, which which surprised me when I started. I thought I would only get half a dozen out of it. <laughs> but then people started helping as well by, uh, by giving me ideas for them. Yeah, like Warriors of the Deep, you turned into Warriors of the Sheep. That's my favorite one. With uh, Carvanista standing there with the Sea Devils and the Merca. Yeah, I did. Um, a good man goes to walkies. <laughs> Lees of Marinus. Uh, oh man, what else was there? The the Roman's best friend. Oh, <laughs> that, that that one's terrible. I, I can't abide by that one. Sorry. <laughs> the greatest best in show in the galaxy. I was quite proud of <laughs> that's, that. That's that's much funnier. <laughs> But I couldn't think of one for the Deadly Assassin. So we could have the Deadly Alsatian, but it doesn't really scan, does it? Actually, you know, that would probably work. If you were to take 
the Mike Little cover and you were to Photoshop uh, an Alsatian's head where the Peter Pratt master is, that would, that would be a pretty good cover. Yeah, that would be cool. Well, one thing we can both agree on is this story is not a dog. No, this is this is a great story. And, and I think it's one that Terrence Dix enjoyed as well. Yeah, this story casts a very long shadow, not only over the series itself, which obviously influences all the way up through Timeless Children, which revisits the themes and, of course, memorably the costumes from this story. But it also casts a very long shadow on Terrence Dix's storytelling personally, because some of the elements from this novelization... And remember, he's not working for the show anymore. He is just novelizing his friend's Robert Holmes's script, but he's not actually involved in the creative process. He takes a lot of the themes from the story, and they became a dominant feature of his books uh, deep into, into the 2000s. But let's backtrack before we talk about the story's shadow. Let's talk about the story itself and how it was received. Obviously, you can't think about Deadly Assassin without thinking about the infamous review by uh, Jan Vincent Rudsky, who was uh, pretty much the head of Doctor Who Phantom at that time. And he gave a scorching review of the story in a contemporaneous fanzine, which has been reprinted a couple of times in um, nonfiction Doctor Who anthologies over the last 20 years. But is he right when he took aim at the story for changing what we know about the Time Lords and uh, destroying the ethos of Doctor Who. Was he correct? Yeah, it's funny to think that that back in those days, uh, fandom could erupt if somebody did a story about the Time Lords, which changed the established continuity. (laughs) Um, Whereas now, everybody's much more level-headed, and if they set a story on Gallifrey, which introduces new elements, everyone just takes it in their stride, don't they? Uh, no, no feathers are ruffled at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is certainly true. You look at the wonderful way that Timeless Children was received <laughs> compared to this story, and, and you can see that fandom has matured and gotten a lot friendlier and happier. But let me read you out some quotes from the Jan Vincent Rudsky piece. I'm sure you know these quotes mm-hmm. by heart. But I think it's instructive because sitting here at the end of my pilgrimage, I disagree with pretty much fundamentally every point that he has to make. And I think when you're watching the show in sequence, this story is much easier to take than, for example, the war games, although he obviously disagrees. He starts off by writing few who stories go very much against what has been done before, but recently this has changed. Um, So that's, that's where he starts. Then he goes after a couple of paragraphs of filler, he goes on to the story, but the word story is in quotation marks. Uh, the opening epigraph to the story, the Time Lords face their most dangerous crisis. He calls a boring cliche. Then he says, what about Omega? He says, I suppose Omega was a minor nuisance. Then he complains about the guards. Then he complains about the TARDIS. He does not like the idea of the CIA. I think the CIA is a terrific idea, but he obviously yeah. does not like it at all. Um, he celebrates the demise of Runcible. He says that when coordinator Engen, although he spells the name wrong, says that premonition doesn't exist. He says the doctors had premonitions in four different stories and names each of them. And then he complains about the Time Lord's uh, uh, technological stagnation. Uh, And there's more. Uh, I don't want to belabor the point. But the end of the essay is a one-sentence paragraph written entirely in capital letters. 
what has happened to the magic of Doctor Who? I don't know. I think this story is magical in and of itself. So, again, we, we're not watching this in real time. This story has received text for us. But mm-hmm. what do you say to this essay? Is he right or is he, as I hold, dead wrong? Yeah, I, I, I don't agree with any of that either. I think it's... it's it is, like you say, I mean, this this obviously was broadcast before I was born, so it, it just came to me along with all of the classic run of Doctor Who, really. Um, it's obviously different as it is now for fans who are watching the the newer episodes in real time and something comes along and it upsets the apple cart, like you say, about timeless children or uh, or any of those stuff or listen or, you know, those stories that, that maybe make you rethink the Doctor's origins or, or the the nature of the Time Lords, you just got to not take it too seriously, haven't you? There's there's stuff in here that is, uh, you know, is contradicted elsewhere. The Doctor Who does not have watertight continuity. You can't you can't get hung up on these things. Uh, you can see the point of view, I suppose, that you know, the Time Lords have previously been presented as all powerful, all knowing, and then here they they don't even know what their own power where they don't know that their own power comes from a black hole. They don't know what the sash and the rod of Rassilon are for. They've just forgotten it all. Um, and they're just kind of obsessed with uh, kind of archaic procedures. And uh, yeah, and it's obviously, I think, a lot of that is probably a pastiche of the British government, the way when Parliament opens, you've got all these ludicrous costumes and they have to sort of parade through the the Palace of Westminster and only a certain person can open the door and they've got kind of rods and things. So you can you can see what he's trying to parody, which is what Robert Holmes does does a lot of the time. I suppose when you when you read the book, he he just kind of remind you how odd it is that nobody knows who the master is. <laughs> um given that uh, in other stories he's this notorious criminal, you know, the the within the five doctors they say the most evil Time Lord, or the, the the most evil genius this Time Lord race has ever produced, or something like that. And especially given that the Doctor was warned about the Master by the Time Lords in the Terror of the Autons, but I think that's explained by that was all the CIA. The CIA know what's going on, and the rest of the Time Lords are just bumbling around and they, and they don't really know. That is interesting. Interestingly, one of the points that Jan Vincent Rudsky does not bring up in his essay, he does not talk about how this contradicts Terror of the Autons, where the Time Lords are seen to know about the Master. But I think Robert Holmes accounts for that, because Robert Holmes, of course, introduced the Master in the first place, and he's the one who wrote that scene with David Garth uh, playing uh, the bowler-hatted uh, Time Lord who's having fun on the radio, on the radio telescope tower not exactly helping the doctor out, but giving him this very unhelpful warning. And I think Robert Holmes has also been preparing us for this because remember one season before deadly assassin is brain of Morbius, where the time Lords are sort of recast as these uh, untrustworthy shifty intergalactic gangsters who Mar incredibly feels are trying to steal the elixir of life from Mm -hmm. the planet Karn. And that is another Robert Holmes script. So he certainly did not like the idea of the Time Lords as benevolent, all-powerful, omnipotent beings. So Robert Holmes is giving us a much more realistic, and as you say, he's giving us a version 
of the Time Lords that is a parody of British culture with the with the College of Cardinals and he and of course the CIA. You can't think the Celestial Intervention Agency without thinking of the American Central Intelligence Agency, yeah. which serves a similar purpose. So he's taking the Time Lords and grounding them firmly in a parody of Western government and hidebound tradition. Now, to me, I love war games. I will not hear a bad word said about war games. And war games is not only the 50th Doctor Who serial, but also the 50th book. So that's going to be episode 50 of this program. And I am planning on a very big celebration. However, when I was doing my pilgrimage last year, and it took me, I don't remember in terms of months, but I think it took about four or five months to get from Unearthly Child Part 1 to War Games Episode 10. War Games Episode 10 is almost disturbing in a way because it takes the Doctor, who is this, you know, over the last, over the first six seasons of the program, the Doctor knows everything and the Doctor solves every crisis. And all of a sudden we see him helpless almost for the first time. He is entirely powerless against his own people. And Patrick Troughton plays it masterfully. But if you think about it on more than a surface level, it almost undercuts the program that the Doctor, who's been the central figure in the series for six years, all of a sudden is completely impotent against his own people to the extent that he'll spend the next three years after that trapped on Earth and very, very resentful. That almost seems like it's a bigger betrayal of what the program had been between 1963 and 1969, whereas Deadly Assassin, even in Jan Vincent Rudsky's day, Deadly Assassin was the logical culmination of things that Robert Holmes had been planting for the last two or three years. Yeah, I think, um, I suppose I suppose it undermines the fact that um, because the Time Lords are so uh, hopeless and clueless in this story that they were able to capture the Doctor and take away his knowledge of time travel and exile him successfully and then pull his strings when they had him running missions for them in various stories like the mutants and things like that. And then when you see them, uh, you realize that must have all been the CIA because the the, the rest of them, um, I guess, don't, don't really know what they're doing, do they? I guess the exception to that, there are two characters in the story who are smarter than the Doctor. And these are the direct descendants of the Time Lords that we would have seen in war games. One of whom is Cardinal Barusa, about who I want to spend a lot more time talking in a few minutes. But like the War Games, Deadly Assassin was also directed by David Maloney, who certainly had his repertory of actors. He cast Bernard Horsfall as the lead Time Lord in War Games Episode 10, and now he has the same actor, arguably playing the same character, although it's never affirmatively said on screen. And now Chancellor Goth is the smartest of the Time Lords, and of course turns out to be, literally turns out to be the deadly assassin himself, because he's the one who actually pulls the trigger uh, on the president. So in that sense, it's almost a direct continuation of War Games. We're just getting the curtain pulled back and we're seeing a retcon of those War Games Time Lords. They're now either the CIA or Chancellor Goth, which is a small minority of Time Lords, rather than every single member of the race having all those same awesome powers yeah is this the first time that that's mentioned because in the i can't remember i can't remember if it's in the tv story because i haven't had time to rewatch it but in the book they talk about how the time lords are the elite the ones who rule and not everybody 
on Gallifrey is a Time Lord. Is this the first time we've had confirmation of that? I know we, on TV we don't see any non-Time Lord Gallifreyans until the invasion of time do with the Shabogans. Although in Invasion of Time, they never call the Shabogans. That word is only spoken in this story as one of those classic Robert Holmes, right. small continuity reference to an apocryphal event that explains everything. So here you have Castellan Spandrel talks about the Shabogans committing acts of hooliganism, although Terence changes the word for the novelization. That's the only reference we get to the Shabogans. But it's never said directly on TV that not every Gallifreyan is a time lord. There's just the one reference to Spandrel spending his time dealing with more plebeian matters. And we're never told exactly what that means. In the book, Terence is the one who tells us that only a few Gallifreyans are time lords. But I don't yeah. think that's directly said on screen unless you want to you know, do a deep mental dive into what the word plebeian could mean in this context. Yeah. It's um, just, just go about the Time Lords. I thought a thing that I picked up on reading the book this time that was quite interesting is when they are investigating the murder of the president and the doctor says or thinks something like, well, it was hard to see which Time Lord was which and which Time Lord was there because of the high collars. And uh, we think, do the high collars only exist for this story? Um, to make it more of to make that murder mystery element, <laughs> you can't see which one's which when the gun goes off, and then for the next sort of fifty years, uh, time lords always have ridiculous, um, really impractical high collars for that reason. <laughs> it is funny because Hugh Walters's television commentator in the episode says the collars are seldom seen. There's, there's a really interesting tidbit about the Doctor as well, um, the Doctor reflecting on his origins on Gallifrey, um, which you've got here where it says, um, it talks about he's, you know, he's, he's been sort of uh, groomed basically and trained to, for a place on the High Council, which seemed to be his unavoidable destiny. He remembered the steadily growing buildup of anger and frustration in his own mind at the never-ending ceremonials and elaborately costumed rituals the endless accumulation of second-hand knowledge that would never be used. A final crisis had provoked rebellion and he had borrowed the TARDIS. So intriguing that, isn't it? The the final crisis. And then that almost sort of ties into the, the arc in Series 9 where the, the Doctor and the Confession dial in Heaven Sent uh, there's that they're, they're sort of it's like they're trying to find out why he really left Gallifrey. So you can just draw a straight line from that line of this book to there. And also, if for the follow up to that in Hell Bent, when they're in the cloisters, talks a lot about the cloisters in this book, doesn't it? Right. And as I'm, as I'm going to say, uh, when I get to the second half of this episode where I'm breaking down the text, I don't think the word cloisters appears on television. Yeah, we've got the TARDIS cloisters, don't we, at the end of the Fourth Doctor era. But the the cloisters as being part of the capital on Gallifrey, that must have inspired Stephen Moffat. Absolutely, because we see a lot more of that in Hellbent as well. Oh, the word cloisters appears once on television, I'm sorry. 
Another thing I made a note of that that Terence Dix in the text has the the central column of the TARDIS moving up and down, but it was the secondary control room that didn't have central column in this story on TV, wasn't it? You know, you're right. I had missed that because I'm reading Mask of Mandragora now in preparation for that episode in a couple of weeks. And I just got to the part last night where they introduced the secondary control room in, in the book version of Mask of Mandragora, which is described exactly as it is on television, with the small room with the wood panels. But you're right, right. Terrence, I, I, I don't know, either he, either he missed that or he was retconning it by deciding that they were in the original white control room all along. Hmm. I suppose if he's working from the script and he hasn't seen the episode for a little while, uh, his mind would immediately go to the one he was more familiar with. Right. So that's almost a continuity error. So let's talk about Barusa and let's do a brief, uh, we'll do a Doctor Who show style uh, countdown. There have been four Barusas on television and... I want to know where you think Angus Mackay fits among the four. So let's count down the best four Baruses, starting with number four and then finishing at number one. Oh man, that's hard. I think I think um, I think the Deadly Assassin one does score. I, can't, I don't know the actors' names, I'm afraid, but the Deadly Assassin one scores very high. I like the sly little um, the things that he says to the Doctor. The um, the line. That he says right at the end, and it's on it's on TV as well. About yeah, um, I told you long ago, Doctor, you will never amount to anything in the galaxy while you retain your propensity for vulgar facetiousness. That's a great line. And when he says to Runcible as well, when Runcible tries to interview him in episode one, and he says, "Well, you had plenty of opportunity to ask me questions when you were my student, and you didn't <laughs> avail yourself of it." He's he's great as a teacher who can still put his pupils in their place and make them feel like children, which is what the text describes their their reaction as. Even when, you know, the Doctor's now hundreds of years old, he's into his fourth incarnation, he can still very much be put into check by uh, uh, by Barusa. Um, I suppose the five Doctors one as well I like because it's the point where he, where he turns evil, isn't it? I suppose Bruce is quite interesting in the sense that what he goes across three different producers. So there were four Baruses on TV. You have mm-hmm. Angus Mackay in this story yeah. in the Hinchcliffe era. Barusa comes back the next season, played by John Arnett, if I if I'm pronouncing that right. That's already the Graham Williams era. And then the last two Baruses both appear in season twenty under JNT. You have mm-hmm. um Leonard Sachs plays Barusa in Ark of Infinity. And then Philip Latham comes back a few months after Ark of Infinity and plays a regenerated Barusa for the five doctors. So I'll give you my countdown. Number four, the least successful Barusa for me is going to be Leonard Sachs in Ark of Infinity. Leonard Sachs was a larger than life figure. He was the inspiration for Henry Gordon Jago in Talons of Wang Chiang, but he brings none of that to Barusa at all. And there's almost nothing remarkable about, about Barusa in Arc of Infinity. And maybe that's a problem with the script. Maybe that's a problem with the Eric Sayward era in general, but he's uh, the number four Barusa. 
Number three, I'm going to go with Philip Latham, who plays Barusa in The Five Doctors. Now, that's my first Barusa. I am coming to the Time Lords with The Five Doctors first. Maybe that's another reason why Deadly Assassin wasn't problematic for me, because that was my paradigm for The Time Lords, because I was mm-hmm. coming as a fan who had seen season 20 before anything else, certainly long before I'd had a chance to see or read the novelization of the war games. I think Philip Latham is very good, but it's only in the last quarter of the story in America that was broken down into a four part serial strung out over four nights. So in parts one, two and three, his Barusa is kind of one dimensional, kind of bland. And it isn't until the very end, the last 20 minutes of the the story that his Barusa really goes over the top evil and becomes memorable. So he's number three for me. Number two, I am going to go with the invasion of time Barusa. I think he's terrific. He's the Barusa with the snowy white hair. And Terrence mm-hmm. in this book says that Barusa has snowy white hair, which the deadly assassin Barusa clearly does not. But for me, the invasion of time Barusa is, he starts off stiff necked and he starts off an antagonist and then he becomes the doctor's very warm ally. And then at the end, he kind of, sort of, you wonder if he's not going to have the doctor killed anyway. And of course, he ends up being a good, being a, you know, a good guy and the doctor's close companion throughout the story. So he's playing Barusa in a lot of different aspects, and I think he's wonderful. Yeah. So he's a very close second, and I think number one, far and away, would be Angus Mackay, who plays Barusa in this story. I think this is the first and the definitive Barusa. He's playing the character at somewhat of a remove. He's there behind the scenes, and he's adversarial, and he doesn't actually play a direct part in the story. But like you say, like you quoted from a few minutes ago, his confrontation with the Doctor in Part 4, where he criticizes the Doctor, gives that great line about, and that's a very Robert Holmes line, your propensity for vulgar facetiousness. And then at the end, he turns to the Doctor and gives him a score, 9 out of 10, and smiles. And you know that he really secretly approves, but he can't say so because he's in charge. So that's my list of the four Barusas. How about you? Let's see if we have the same order. So yeah, I think, um, and some of this might be reflecting how much I like the stories as well, but yeah, I think it goes for me, Deadly Assassin, Five Doctors, Evasion of Time, Ark of Infinity. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I can't remember the Ark of Infinity that well, and I can remember Barusa even less. So that probably speaks to his performance not being very memorable as well. Um, but yeah, the Five Doctors, I think... I suppose he misses, he loses some of that, some of that sort of charm and that sly, like you say, sly approval of the Doctor. But he is evil by then, isn't he? So I suppose that uh, it's it's a pity there's not there's no consistency in the actors, really, isn't it? Given that there's there's only about six years uh, across the, the the span of his character, it's a pity that they didn't get the same actor back at least once. So he's a bit like. Um, Felix Leiter of uh, of Time Lords, isn't he? <laughs> That's a good point. Although they finally did get one of the Felix Leiters twice uh, in in a uh, in License to Kill. They brought back David Hedison from uh, Live and Let Die, and then of course yeah, Jeffrey it's... Wright consistently played uh, Felix Leiter throughout the Daniel Craig movies. Yeah, yeah, finally there. But I, I think it's interesting that uh, the character persisted over three producers. In you know, in terms where that you know, there's not a lot of continuity. It's interesting that they that the character persisted through different script editors and producers. 
he became, I guess, as much a part of the Time Lord set dressing as those James Aitchison fiberglass collars that we've heard so much about mm-hmm. earlier in this recording. I think there's a continuity between the deadly assassin Barusa and the invasion of Time Barusa because they're both antagonistic allies. Mm-hmm. The actors are very different ages because I think this Barusa is younger and more vigorous, where he's played as more of an elder statesman with snowy white hair in Invasion of Time, which is how Terence describes the character in the book here. You can see that those two Baruses are possibly the same incarnation. Obviously, one is much older than the other. But yeah, there's not a lot of consistency between 70s Barusa and 80s Barusa. And that's why, probably not coincidentally, I have the 80s Barusas on my list below the two 70s Barusas. Hmm. It's a good name, Barusa, though, isn't it? It's almost an evil-sounding name, uh, uh, because Barusa, Medusa, I don't know if that was intentional. But let me ask you this. This is what I've been slowly and ineffectively building up to. This is Barusa's first story. He's high-ranking. He's acidic. He will lie. He will alter the truth Mm. in favor of public relations and morale. And he tacitly approves of the doctor's methods and the outcome, but he also tells the doctor to get off my planet like a like a Western sheriff, get a, get out of Dodge. So this is the original Barusa. Terence did not create him. Terence is only adapting him for the novelization. But this book comes out in late 1977. It's only five and a half years till the production of the Five Doctors, where Terence is writing his own Time Lord story, and he decides that Barusa is the bad guy. When did Terence, and this is a uh, this is an intellectual exercise, Mark, when does Terence decide that Barusa is evil? Does he come to that, that decision because he needs a non-master villain in The Five Doctors, or did he decide while writing this book that Barusa is not <laughs> really a saint, and this is where he decides that Barusa is evil, writing the book right here? There is a great line in this book. Um, I'm just trying to see if I can find it. I feel like I did make a note of it, where it says that he's been offered the presidency, but he prepared, he prefers to sort of work basically behind the throne and unseen uh, pull the strings, isn't it? So that's that makes you think he's a bit of a shadowy figure. Um, but also, as you say, the fact that he will is quite willing to lie to the rest of Time Lord society to 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 hide the truth and and as you learn during the course of this story nobody really knows what happened with the omega affair um right people know that uh, there was some kind of crisis and then it was all over but nobody knows about the doctor's um involvement with it whatsoever it's not the doctor isn't lauded as a hero either as a result of defeating Omega and saving Time Lord Society or defeating the Master in this story and and saving Time Lord Society again. So you can see why the Time Lords consistently think of him uh, as a renegade and somebody who's not to be trusted in future stories because they keep, uh, Barusa seemingly keep, keeps that information to himself. And there's another line later in the book where... As Terence is writing that line, he must certainly have the climax of the Five Doctors already fully formed in his head in 1977. 
I will read out that line in the second half of the program uh, after you leave when I'm breaking down the text of the book. But we've talked a lot about Deadly Assassin, how it fits into the mythology, how it's received by fandom in 1977 versus how we look at it today. We've talked about Goth. We've talked about Runcible. We've talked about Barusa. We haven't talked too much about Spandrel and Angen, but this is a multi-genre story because it is hard sci-fi with virtual reality. It is a cop show procedural with Spandrel as the detective and Angen as his uh, socially awkward but technically adept uh, lab technician. Mm-hmm. And it's also political intrigue. It's the Manchurian Candidate. There's a, there's a wonderful amount of different genres mashed up in Deadly Assassin. But we have not talked about the master. So I will not make you do another countdown of, of the worst master to the best master, the way we did for Barusa. But where do you put Peter Pratt's portrayal? Oh, wow. Where do you put Peter Pratt's portrayal? That was totally unintentional. But where do you rank Peter Pratt's version of the master uh, among all the ones that we've seen? between Roger Delgado and Sacha Devon? That's an interesting one. I really, really like it, but the, there's there's other portrayals that I like more. I'd put him below Delgado. Well, everybody goes below Delgado. That, that's hardly yeah, a fair point. Yeah. Put him below <laughs> Gomez as well. Uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, he's, uh, maybe he's equal with, uh, with Eric Roberts. Uh, who I do, who I really like as well. But maybe an interesting point about that I always, and I, I probably said this before on on the Trap One podcast. Today, your or yesterday, your pilgrimage reached death in heaven. Yes, we are recording this on Friday. On Tuesday night, I watched Dark Water, and on Wednesday night, I watched Death in Heaven. These are the first times that I've seen uh, the Missy Master since she exited the series in 2017. And it's mm. only the second time that I've watched Dark Water slash Death in Heaven. So I had some thoughts about Michelle Gomez up on my Twitter pilgrimage. Well, I was going to talk about your comments about the Cyber Brigadier because whenever anybody thinks that the Cyber brigadier is somehow sort of disrespectful to uh to the memory of the brigadier or nicholas courtney i always kind of wonder why um people have a problem with that but they don't have a problem with roger delgado after his death being replaced by a rotting corpse which i <laughs> i think is even worse than than the cyber brigadier which um i don't know whether it's just it's just that the We've got used to the idea of the Rotting Corpse master, and he's been around for so long. But would you know, had Twitter been around in 1977, would that have provoked the same level of outrage? You've replaced an actor who's died with, with a literal rotting corpse. How how is that not as bad as the Cyber Brigadier? I suppose is my question. Well, let's break that down. I'm I'm. I'm... I have not thought about this before, so I'm breaking this down on the fly. I'm taking my lawyer skills, and I'm making an argument that I haven't fully thought about. The Cyber Brigadier is a sight gag, all right? The Cyber Brigadier is not a logical part of the story. Yes, you see Nicholas Courtney's oil painting on board uh, Cloudbase, or whatever the doctor uh, 
sarcastically calls the, the, the unit airplane. But all of a sudden, this one lone Cyberman shows up after Danny Pink has uh, sacrificed all the others. And he dispatches Missy, and then he salutes the Doctor and flies away, and the Doctor realizes who he is in the last ten minutes of the story. When you're watching the beginning, when you're watching Dark Water, there's no indication that there's going to be a Brigadier Ex Machina to save the day. That's why I say the Cyber Brigadier is a sight gag. He appears in the one camera shot, and then he's never mentioned again. And this story is made in 2014. Here we are in 2022. It's been eight years the Cyber Brigadier has never come back. So he's a joke. He's a gag. Now, compare that with the Deadly Assassin. And again, I'm coming up with this argument as I go. This is completely mm-hmm. extemporaneous. There is no secret that the Master is the bad guy in the story. He's identified by name in his first scene. He's credited as the Master. It isn't like a Roy Tromley, uh, James Stoker, Neil Twainy situation where they're pretending that he's somebody else until he pulls off the mask. The fact that he is the master, the fact that he is decaying, that's the whole point of the story. So he's not a psychic. He's actually a character who has been brought to this position for years of being the doctor's adversary. It's very similar to what Eric Roberts says at the end of the TV movie, by which point his character is also a rotten corpse, where he says, and I'm not going to do my Eric Roberts impression because it's terrible. I'll just say the words on the page. I've wasted all my lives because of you, Doctor. So I think the Peter Pratt master is playing a thought-through, thematically appropriate version of the character. Now, yes, maybe it's unfortunate that Roger Delgado died in tragic circumstances, and you're replacing a literally dead actor with, with a rotting corpse. That might be a little rude, but I'd never heard that argument before, and Deadly Assassin is now... 45 years old so i don't think anybody at the time thought it was inappropriate and i think the character of the rotting corpse master works because even though the mask doesn't fit and the lips don't move even as peter pratt is talking while the prop is unfortunate i think peter pratt gives a sort of perverse dignity to that version of the master Mm -hmm. and while he's not the best master ever because he's really only in the one story and then Jeffrey Beavers inherits the same rotting corpse costume for the last five minutes of Keeper of Troc and several years later. You can't have a rotting corpse master come back over and over again, right? It can only be the one story. Although Big Finish has Jeffrey Beavers play the rotting corpse master on audio several times over the years. Yes. As a one-off, I think Peter Pratt does it very well. He's not as good as Michelle Gomez. He's not as good as Roger Delgado because they have multiple chances to hone mm-hmm. their trade. Even Anthony Ainley, I had newfound respect for during my pilgrimage. I wouldn't put Pratt on the top three, but he's certainly not the worst one. I think he does a really good job for what he does. And then mm. I want to come back and talk about the Cyber Brigadier again, but I've been talking nonstop for five minutes, so I'll give you a chance to uh, speak. Yeah, it's, I suppose it's more not not so much the you know, you know the, the the plot logic or anything. It is more the the arguments against the Cyber Brigadier on the grounds of taste. That particularly at the time uh, I saw being expounded a little bit, um, but yeah, no, I don't think anybody complains about it in the Deadly Assassin. But I I didn't see any any uh, complaints that couldn't be a, that, that that were similar that couldn't be applied to the Master in the Deadly Assassin that were applied to the 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 Brigadier 
the Cyber Brigadier. Because at this point, we'd only had Roger Delgado and then the Rotten Corpse one in the way that, you know, we already had um, Nicholas Courtney and, the, and then the Cyber Brigadier. So, yeah, I just, it just found it interesting that it's like the, the stuff that's new, people find very hard to deal with and come to terms with. And the stuff that's been around for years that you've just come across is just accepted as, yeah, that's fine because it's, uh, it's been around for years. But coming back to the Cyber Brigadier, my friend Eric Briggs, who comes from Toronto fandom, uh, messaged me after my after my Twitter thread, and he brought up a point that I've never thought about before, but now that he said it to me, I can't unsee it. And this is what he says. He asks me to think a few stories back to Mummy on the Orient Express, which is the middle of Series 8, which of course mm-hmm. ends with Dark Water, Death in Heaven. The antagonist or the monster, I should say, in Mummy on the Orient Express is the foretold. What is the foretold? A mummy, a soldier, a dead soldier, I suppose. A dead soldier from a forgotten war. Now, Mm. you flash forward a couple of weeks to Death in Heaven. There are two dead soldiers who figure heavily at the end of the story. Danny Pink engineers the climax, and the cyber brigadier shows up as, as, as a psych gag ex machina. Eric thinks that either one of those could end up because they end up going out into space and living forever. Right. One of them could become the foretold, which is a genetically engineered corpse. And I had not thought of that. And I'm kicking myself for not seeing it, but Moffat does these seasons the way he does for a reason. There has to be a thematic mm-hmm. connection between the foretold and the end of death and heaven, because they're the same season it's the same story arc. And that's chilling. I think it works better if Danny Pink is the foretold because he salutes mm-hmm. the doctor at the end. But of course the brigadier also salutes the doctor before he shoots off into the stars. And the last thing the foretold does is salute the doctor. That is brilliant. I'd never thought about that, but I love that. That's fantastic. Except did, did you think, did you get the impression that the brigadier left earth at the end of uh, death in heaven? I, I just assumed he was going to, he just blasted off into the sky and was going to stay on Earth. Or uh, I didn't get the impression of going into space, but I like the idea that he has gone into space and is having adventures in the stars. I mean, he doesn't need to breathe anymore, so he can certainly, uh, you know, pull a silver surfer and uh, fly the yeah. power cosmic and become the shining sentinel of the spaceways. To use some typical Stanley hyperbole. Uh, it's never said because we never see the cyber brig again. He doesn't have a John Culshaw voiced seven series, big finish box set. Although maybe that's coming. Yeah. But again, that's why I think the cyber brigadier is a psych egg that doesn't work because you, you never see him again. But if he's supposed to be the foretold or if Danny pink later becomes the foretold, that makes it much more interesting to me because then it's an integral part of the season story arc. Yeah. What we need to do is wait for the target novelization of, Moe on the Orient Express. <laughs> oh, I, ho- I, ho- I hope one is coming. Uh, yeah, the new Target too. books have not arrived in the States yet. I think they're due for release on July 26th, which is next Tuesday. Have you read them yet? Uh, I haven't read them yet, but they, they have arrived. Um, I've been reading The Deadly Assassin, so, uh, so they're next on my list. And we are covering all four of those on Trap One. I am going to be leading the conversation for two of the four books. Yeah, and, and I'll be doing one of the others, and Sci Heart is doing one of them as well. 
And unfortunately, we are not getting the Zygon invasion slash inversion because that book was delayed until 2023. But that is another story that comes from the Moffat era, and it's a two-parter, and it further explores the Lethbridge-Stewart family tree. So I'm wondering if there's not going to be a discussion of Darkwater Death in Heaven in the novelization of Zygon Invasion Inversion. Because obviously it's almost a direct sequel because it's the next time we see Kate Stewart. It's the next time we see one of the Osgoods. Yeah, and Day of the Doctor as well, of course, which uh, which has been novelized. And very, very effectively by Stephen Moffat himself. Let me give you the last word on Deadly Assassin. What else can we say about the book? characters, the story, Terrence's spin on the story, which gives us things we didn't see on television? I think I think in terms of, of the novelization, I think Terrence, you can tell that he enjoys the story. He really gets his teeth into it. I like the fact that he's added these little hints about the Doctor leaving Gallifrey, things about Time Lord Society and Gallifrey and Society. The the sequence that's set in the Matrix, he makes it really makes it so exciting. The way he does loads of short, punchy little paragraphs, and you see it from the Doctor's point of view and the Hunter's point of view. That's great, and really that side of it works more effectively in the book than the TV show because in the TV show you can kind of tell that it's Bernard Horsfall when he's talking to the Master, where you're not supposed to know who he is. But in the book, if if you read the book first as I did. You've no idea that it's goth until the reveal that it's goth. So that's cool. I like all the stuff about the Prydonians as well, that goth's a Prydonian, the doctor's a Prydonian, and that they are seen as the most cunning, but also uh, you know the most intelligent, but also the most cunning and ruthless. All that is is great sort of backstory for it. Um, and probably the final thing I would say is at the bottom of page 40, Terence Dick says, Heart pounding, legs aching, the doctor ran up. But it should say hearts pounding, not heart pounding. So much like the TARDIS console where he describes there being a central column rising and falling when there wasn't, he's forgotten that the doctor's got two hearts. Ooh, I I, I managed to miss that when I was reading this the other night. Oh, you're right. <laughs> Look at that. Wow. Unless only one of them is pounding and the other one is um, is just maintaining his, his resting, <laughs> resting heart rate. It's also mentioned, of course, that the Prydonians have produced more presidents than all the other chapters combined. And Barusa is a Prydonian, the Doctor is a Prydonian, and Goth is a Prydonian. You have to wonder if that was not some subconscious influence on the Harry Potter franchise, where you have the houses and the sorting hat, which tells you which house you are, and each house is, you know, either devious or evil or noble or yeah, and I think probably it, it's probably a reference to like Eton in this country, which is the school that's produced the most British prime ministers. It's where David Cameron and Boris Johnson and uh, and various other nefarious <laughs> leaders. That's hardly that a had, selling point. Yeah, I was going to say. Were educated. <laughs> yeah, but I, I imagine that. Yeah, that um, that idea that. You know they've they've come from they've been sort of groomed by this place to to become leaders in some way. A lot of people from Eton, uh, I think I think the idea that a lot of them become politicians, a lot of them join the army, some some of them become actors. I think I think sort of Eddie Redmayne and people like that went there. Uh, but yeah, it is sort of sort of 
forging these people the idea that they will they they will go on to lead and instilling that that self confidence and that that ironclad belief um, in yourself. Yeah, even if as with recent examples of prime ministers, they're absolutely just uh, opportunist, criminally incompetent charlatans, to put it mildly. <laughs> I'm not quite sure I know what you mean. You're really hedging your bets there. well uh so so yeah i mean it's uh we've got here is uh you know goth who is uh who is uh, revealed to be working uh, against the interests of his own people uh and he's, he's brought down so speaking of brought down i want to bring you down to size a little bit by challenging you to a game and we're going to play the hardest and most notorious game that I have to offer on Doctor Who literature, and that is going to be Guess That Cliffhanger. And in a way, you brought this on yourself, because the last time you were on, you said you were going to play 20 questions then, and Guess That Cliffhanger now. Yeah, I'm going to be, I'm, I'm going to be terrible at this, but, I, but I'm, I'm as ready as I can be. <laughs> I think two of these are very, very obvious, and one of them is a little bit obscure. So let's play that clip. Who are you? What are you doing here? Oh, well, I just dropped by to see Leonardo, actually. Is he about... Nobody's allowed to see Leonardo. Really? He's engaged on important work for Captain Tancredi. Captain Tancredi? You know him? No. He'll want to question you. Well, I'll want to question him so we can both have a little chat, can't we? He'll be here instantly. I think that is exactly the question I ought to be asking you, Doctor. All right, and that's our first clip. It may be the most famous cliffhanger and the most <laughs> obvious one you will ever get on Doctor Who literature. It's one of uh, the great ones. Mark, you were going to tell us, for two points out of six, you were going to tell us the name of the story and which episode the cliffhanger ends. That is the city of death. Uh, episode two. I would I prolong the suspense, but there's no point. You, you're a hundred percent right. <laughs> Cannot get much more obvious um, than that one. Uh, yeah. I mean, I was a hundred percent on the story and about 90% on the episode. So, uh, <laughs> so I'm pleased to got that. It's the halfway point of the story, and it transitions from 1979 Paris to 1505 Italy. And again, City of Death, I know there's a growing segment of fandom that is sort of rebelling against the idea that City of Death is the greatest of all time. But for my mm -hmm. money, it is my absolute comfort Doctor Who. I think it is the perfect script. There's only a couple of things in the script that I would change. That's it. It's almost perfection from my point of view. And that cliffhanger is a great cliffhanger. Yeah. No, I, I absolutely adore that story. It's a really early story that I saw as well. For me, I got it got it on VHS. Maybe or maybe the first or second Tom Baker story that I ever saw. So, uh, yeah, I, I fell in love with it when I was uh, probably 10 or 11. And, yeah, I can watch it over and over again. Yeah, it's probably one of the stories that I can watch multiple times in a year and never get bored of because the performances and the dialogue are so witty that I, I, it never gets old for me. I've told you this story before. When I was in Paris in 2018, 
We spent 24 hours in Paris in the middle of our London trip. And I just took the excuse to just hum that Dudley Simpson music. And eagle-eared listeners of this podcast will already have heard that music uh, at the the top of the hour. And we went to the top of the Eiffel Tower, and we were running running down uh, uh, the colonnades outside of the Louvre. If it happened in City of Death, I did it during my 24 hours in Paris. So hugely influential story. And then I bought the Target paperback novelization in the Who shop that same week, and I read it on the airplane ride home. I think I finished it during the flight home. Great, great. I didn't love the original hardcover City of Death, but I love the cut-down version uh, for the Target line. It just gets rid of a lot of the chaff and just leaves uh, the core of the story intact, and it's very, very funny. Yeah, it's it's impossible as a Doctor Who fan to go to Paris and not have the music running through your head most of the time that you're there, I think. Yeah, I have two musical cues, one to open the show, one to close the show, and that's really putting my heart on my sleeve because the cues that I selected from are two of my favorite stories of all time. And you'll hear me on Gallifrey's Most Wanted coming up in the near future talking about the other one of those stories. So I'll leave that for Ross, but I have to give my props to City of Death. There's a reason why it's the opening titles to this show. Are you ready for your second clip? It could be anywhere. Dear, 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 dear. It's, It's no help to us at all. Well, I suggest before we go outside and explore... Let us clean ourselves up. Yes. Now, what does the radiation read, Susan? It's reading normal, Grandfather. is our second clip. This is a six-point game. You already have two. Four is passing. What is the name of that story, and what is the episode number to which it is the cliffhanger? So it's, it's, it's an Unearthly Child episode four. And how did you deduce that? I think because it, yeah, because it ends with them... Um arriving on Scarrow, doesn't it? And the uh, the radiation meter, as you say, it, as it rises. The radiation meter rises after they stop looking at it. And then when they go out into Scarrow, obviously that causes all the problems with the with the radiation. And then they need the radiation gloves, as William Hartnell says. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, the anti-radiation gloves, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the, yeah, it's, it's uh, obviously immediately thought of the Daleks, but of course... It's those early stories where they run into each other like that. So, uh, so it's the cliffhanger to the previous story. So, I don't know the individual episode titles. Maybe the Cave of Skulls, but I'll just say an Unearthly Child episode four. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll give that to you. The actual episode is called the Fire Maker, but it, it's hard to know yes. all the individual Hartnell names. I'll say that I almost disqualified that one when it came up in in, in the random generator because it's not a proper cliffhanger in the middle of the story. It is the lead-in to the next story. But back in the Hartnell era, they did that. Back in the Hartnell era, it was all one ongoing serial. So Mm -hmm. even the very last episode of the story would have its own cliffhanger leading into the next serial. 
So I'm getting these off of episodegenerator.com slash doctor hyphen who hyphen old. And when it gave me Unearthly Child Part 4, I thought about disqualifying it, but it is a cliffhanger in and of itself. So I left it in, and you nailed it, and you've now won the game because you've gotten four <laughs> points. But we're going to go for a perfect score. I think the only other person who got a perfect score is Cy Hart because, of course, Cy is my all-time record holder in every category on this show. Yeah. <laughs> but this is a tough one for me, and I'll tell you why. Usually when I get the cliffhanger off of the episodegenerator.com, I already know what the cliffhanger is before I play the clip. This mm-hmm. one, though, I don't remember this cliffhanger. I mean, obviously, I know the story, but I don't remember what is the cliffhanger to the episode part that's been chosen for me. So I'm going to be finding out, or at least reminding myself, as I watch the clip, same as you are. Are you ready? I'm ready. You are standing in the airlock of this spacecraft. Unless you answer my questions within ten seconds, I will take the atmospheric pressure around you. If you do that, my body will explode! And that is our final cliffhanger. You can get a perfect score by guessing the name of the story and the episode part which that cliffhanger ends. Mark, what do you have to say? Well, I think I can get one point, hopefully, by saying the Ice Warriors. And then it's going to be a bit of a punt for the episode number. But I'm going to say episode four. It's a six-parter, isn't it, the Ice Warriors? It is a six-parter. Yeah, I'm going to get episode four of the Ice Warriors. Well, the fact that it's the Ice Warriors, I guess, is a giveaway because we've just been watching the Ice Warriors on screen and Patrick Trout. So it could only be Ice Warriors or Seeds of Death. Why do you think this is Ice Warriors and not Seeds of Death? Well, I think I remember the scene with with the airlock from when I reviewed this with... Fraser and uh, and maybe Cy, I can't remember a little while. Whenever the vinyl came out for the Ice Warriors, we did a Trap One episode on it, and I think I remember the uh, the Doctor arriving in the Ice Warriors ship that is uh, hidden under the ice and having that that standoff. Right. Well, I will end the suspense, and I will say that you were right on both counts. It is oh. the Ice Warriors. <laughs> And it is the end of episode four, or as it's called on screen in all capital letters, four. So you are 100% correct. You get a perfect score, six out of six. You have tied Simon Hart as the all-time record holder on Doctor Who literature, not only for total appearances on the show, but also for the perfect immaculate score and guess that cliffhanger. Fantastic. Thank you very much. I, I relieved to get any points on that so uh so a perfect score is a very unexpected bonus and next time you're on i'll have to think of a harder game to try and trip you up well i'll have another go at 20 questions see if i can beat Cy Hart or equal him on that as well (laughs) well you're the only one who has the strategy of playing the opening uh, episode you always have the opening uh title 
So one of these days, if you play the game enough, you will get it right. Yeah, yeah that's it. If I can, if I can guess the story on, on uh, the first guess, I will be unbeatable as the all-time record holder. So I'm going to continue with that strategy. <laughs> and your opening story is the visitation. So one of these days it will come up, and maybe you will be the guest when it comes up. <laughs> All right, Mark, thanks again for joining me and talking about Deadly Assassin in um, terrific detail. Obviously, we can find you on Trap One. What are some recent Trap One episode highlights that we can listen to? So we did... A really fun episode where we talked about uh, Time Wake and other stories. So this was a, a CD uh, of some of the annual stories. So the the uh, obviously the first six Doctors had annuals with that were full of short stories. And so what they've done is get a lot of Doctor Who actors to who are relevant to the uh, to the to that era, like Annika Wills. Uh, got Colin Baker on that last one. Louise Jameson, John Leeson. Uh, Jeffrey Beavers that you mentioned. So, uh, so yeah, some of these these uh, annual stories are some of them are really really out there. Uh, so they're always good fun to discuss. Uh, so that was a recent one. Sai uh, and Pete reported from the Utopia Convention, which I think is uh, is an is an annual one. Uh, so that that's a really good fun one as well. Some good guests on that as well. Joe Hart uh, is on that one. Joe Ford, sorry. <laughs> No, I'm thinking get mixed up with Cy Hart there. Uh, Joe Ford and, and Jason Thompson appear on that one as well. Um, we've just released an episode on the Sensorites, which you're on, to mark the, the story's release on vinyl. I am a big fan of the Sensorites, and I may have gone over the top defending the story over the course of that recording, but I'll post the link in the show notes, and my faithful listeners can decide for themselves whether or not I am being too kind to the Sensorites. But I, lo- I love it to pieces. It's a, it's, a, it's a good, fun story. Right, Mark, thanks again for joining me. We're going to get you back on here real soon, and I will try and trip you up with a new game even more <laughs> fiendish and cunning and deadly than The Deadly Assassin. Thank you very much. Doctor Who and the Deadly Assassin, written by Terence Dix, televised as the Deadly Assassin, teleplayed by Robert Holmes, televised in October and November 1976, published in October 1977. The Doctor is suddenly summoned to Gallifrey, the home of the Time Lords, where his ghastly hallucination of the President's assassination seems to turn into reality. When the Doctor is arrested for the murder, there is a hideous, dark, cowled figure gleefully watching in the shadows. Faced with his old enemy, the Master, Doctor Who approaches defeat in a battle of minds in a nightmare world created by the Master's imagination. But the Master's evil intentions go much further. He has a doomsday plan. It is up to the Doctor to prevent him from destroying Gallifrey and taking over the universe. Page 7 of The Deadly Assassin Returning the TARDIS to Earth, the Doctor said a hurried farewell to Sarah, almost bundling her from the control room. He realized she was more than a little hurt that their long friendship was being broken off so abruptly, but the Time Lord summons took precedence over everything else. And that is the first time we learn in a novelization that Sarah Jane is no longer the Doctor's traveling companion. Spoilers! 
between March 1975 and August 1977, there were nine separate Fourth Doctor adventures novelized by Target, and all of them featured Sarah Jane Smith. In that same run came two adaptations of season 11 Third Doctor adventures, Invasion of the Dinosaurs and Planet of the Spiders. That made 11 Sarah Jane Smith books. And this, Deadly Assassin, is only book 36 of the Target run, the first three of which were reprints from a different publisher in the 1960s, so literally a full third of Target's output towards the end of their fourth year of churning out original books had Sarah in them. And this is how we find out she's gone? Bit harsh, man. It'll be over a year until The Hand of Fear gets novelized, which comes out in January 1979. Now, of course, most fans, when this book came out, would already have been aware that Sarah was gone from the TV. But this is our first season 14 novelization, and reading these books 45 years on, and in publication order, I don't know what hurts worse. The sudden loss of Sarah from the books, or the fact that her departure was summarized only in one short paragraph. Short. Huh. That's an apt word to describe Terence's novelization of The Deadly Assassin. The book taps out at just 116 pages, the shortest Target book to date, although even shorter ones are coming. When I say 116 pages, I mean the story ends on page 122, but starts on page 7. So that number, 122, is a little bit of false advertising. But there is still a lot to cram into those 116 pages. Mythology, for one thing. The Deadly Assassin is that great wholesale reinvention of the Time Lord mythos, and you can imagine the furore it caused, especially from the pen of one Jan Vincent Rudsky, as you heard earlier. I don't know, though. As I discussed with Mark, War Games turned the great anarchic Second Doctor into a petulant child called before his elders, more Trelane in Star Trek's The Squire of Gothos than anything else. And speaking of Gothos... In this story, the great anarchic fourth doctor is called before Chancellor Goth, but suddenly is anything but petulant. This story elevates the doctor above the Time Lords, makes him smarter and more clever, more experienced than them. And it works, too, because as we discussed in episode 33, Doctor Who and the Brain of Morbius, we'd already had hints, both on TV and in print, that the Time Lords were not as perfect as the war games had hinted. Robert Holmes was building up to this story in his three years as script editor, and it's a tale that, more so than War Games, continues to influence even the new series, with those famous Time Lord collars cropping up as a major plot point, even in 2020's The Timeless Children. Terence is up for the mythology. Here he is on page 8, giving us the most comprehensive biography of the Doctor that we've ever gotten in the previous 35 Target books and Mark read some of this earlier. As he rechecked the instruments, the doctor's mind drifted back over the past. He remembered his youth on Gallifrey, the long years of training to fit him for the place on the High Council that seemed his unavoidable destiny. He remembered the steadily growing buildup of anger and frustration in his own mind at the never-ending ceremonials and elaborately costumed rituals, the endless accumulation of second-hand knowledge that would never be used. The final crisis had provoked rebellion. He had, quote-unquote, borrowed the TARDIS and fled through time and space, determined to see the universe for himself. After many adventures, there had come capture, exile to Earth, and at last freedom again. 
his reward for dealing with the terrible Omega Crisis. Now he was on his way back to Gallifrey, a planet to which he had once sworn never to return. Returning because, after all the long years of rebellion, at heart he was still a Time Lord. This is the second straight book to feature a character played on TV by George Pravda. Terence wrote both books, but he gives Castellan Spandrel much more of the benefit of the doubt than he gave Jaeger in Doctor Who and the Mutants, episode 35. He was a man of medium height, Terence writes, unusually broad and muscular for a Time Lord, with a heavy, impassive face that disguised a keen intelligence. Spandrel was a tough, sardonic character, made cynical by long years in security. He had seen too much of the underside of Time Lord life to have any illusions about it, and his blunt, no-nonsense manner had upset many a self-important government official. Spangel survived because of his integrity and efficiency. No one else could cope with his difficult and thankless job. That says a lot, and Terence is giving us all this as received fact, as if he'd personally known for years that this is what the Time Lords were really like. Although you can give an assist to Robert Holmes's script notes, and Terence makes some minor changes on the fly. Hillred, captain of the Chancellery Guard, is renamed Hildred, and Terence adds the phrase chameleon circuit, which wasn't on TV. More so than in The Mutants, even though this is a short book, Terence takes an instant delight in these characters, and describes them in phrases that linger in the mind, at least in this podcaster's mind, for decades after. The description of Coordinator Engin is so perfect, you think that Eric Chitty, the TV actor, was computer-generated by The Matrix, just to fit Terence's words. Page 13. Engin was old, even for a Time Lord, not only in the number of his regenerations, but in the physical age of his present body. He had spent all his lives in the records section, beginning as a humble data recorder, rising slowly through the centuries to his present eminence. Engin's present body was almost worn out now, and he was bent and shrunken with age, his hair snowy white, his face wrinkled like an old apple. His next, and probably final, regeneration was long overdue. But Engin constantly refused to take the time away from his duties, insisting that since he never left the computer area anyway, his present body would serve for a year or two yet. Despite his great age, Engin was still brisk and efficient, and his eyes were alive with curiosity. Chapter 1 Ends with Terence adding a reference to Sherlock Holmes, clearly a reference to the adventure of the empty house, to cover the doctor's escape from Hillred, sorry, Hildred, in the TARDIS console room. That's not just a clever nod to Robert Holmes's silent TV homage, it's also a clue. Remember that Terence and Barry Letts specifically created the master to be Moriarty to the doctor's Holmes, and that the Roger Delgado master was supposed to exit the series in a story modeled after the final problem before Delgado's tragic and untimely death. Terence is going right back to first principles here. If the Master appears in a Terence book, then a Sherlock Holmes reference cannot be too far behind. But it's not just old-time references and continuity. The Deadly Assassin continues season 14's surprising trend towards hard science fiction, and Terence, writing in 1977 about computers and virtual reality, seems surprisingly at home in this fairly new genre. His description on page 19 of how Engin works the computers in the Capitol's records tower is surprisingly modern, even here in 2022. Quote, Information in this category was automatically encoded, but Engin had worked so long with the computer that he could sight-read the symbols. Spangel was in a hurry, and he found it infuriating 
that all his information had to be filtered through the sometimes wandering mind of the ancient coordinator. Meanwhile, Terence keeps pouring on the new continuity, so well thought through that, if you were picking up this book cold, you might be surprised to learn that all this is new information, like a brief description of how the CIA works, alongside a not-on-TV reference to Omega, with a footnote to the novelization of the three doctors. Page 22, for example, explains that the Time Lords were themselves a kind of aristocracy. Relatively few inhabitants of Gallifrey were of Time Lord rank, and this elite group was itself subdivided into a number of societies or chapters, Prydonians, Arcalians, Patrexes, and so forth. The members of each chapter were bound together by a complex web of family and political alliances, and by one overriding purpose, to compete with all the rival chapters. And of all the different chapters, the Prydonians were the most aristocratic, the most powerful, and the most ruthless. And, of course, Terence still has his usual incredible descriptive powers, even in the middle of all the exposition, with a simile on page 25 about animated chessmen. Page 26. And yes, it's a sign of how good this book is, that we're this deep into my discussion, and we're still only on page 26. And here's Terence writing for Barusa for the first time, a character that will keep turning up again and again in Terence's later TV scripts and original novels. It seems that right here in 1977, Terence has already mapped out Barusa's future. Quote, he had twice been offered the office of president and had twice refused. The presidential post had too many purely ceremonial functions. Barusa preferred to exercise real authority from behind the scenes. And skipping ahead for a moment to page 98, the sudden death of both president and chancellor had left the old cardinal as the leader of the high council. He was quite prepared to take over both offices until the crisis was over. Boom. We're still six years away from the five doctors, but Barusa's role in that story must certainly have had its genesis in this little paragraph here. Not bad for a mere 116-page book, which adds so much detail and Time Lord lore that's never spoken aloud on screen in The Deadly Assassin. And the throwaway line about a grandfather clock in the Panopticon Museum, one of many items in a, quote, strange collection of objects on page 31, also has a much deeper meaning on reread. Something else remarkable about that grandfather clock, chapter 3 in the book, and corresponding to a scene that takes place about halfway through part 1 on TV, is that the clock isn't visible on TV. Either the script specified that it was there, and David Maloney didn't show it, or Terence made up that bit himself as foreshadowing. Well, foreshadowing by half a page, as the master himself shows up on the bottom of page 31, clearly identified without any mystery, and of course he is the owner of that grandfather clock. As far as script-to-screen adaptations go, Terence doesn't grapple with the structure of Holmes's draft scripts, not that he needs to. There's only a minimum of rearranging of scenes and dialogue, Terence adding a couple of words on the page for clarity, but no more. Some minor differences in Chapter 3, Terence invents something called a track tracer to help Spandrel and Hildred's intuitive leap that the Doctor never entered the capital, and while the Master overpowers the TV cameraman in the book, Terence writes that brief scene with the cameraman having already disappeared, and with the Master contemplating assassination with a Staser rifle instead. Quote, It amused the Master to think that with a gentle pressure on the trigger, he could bring death to anyone he chose. Terence also removes the close-up of a handgun pointing at the President on the Panopticon dais, 
choosing instead to end part one material in chapter three, with the doctor firing from the camera gallery and the president falling, as if to imply that the doctor himself really did do it. Something else I appreciate about the novelization, especially coming after the much-condensed mutants, is how Terence doesn't leave anything out, not even in a 116 book that's 20 pages shorter than most of his previous 1977 output. And he still adds connective sentences that give added character insights. Spandrel finds it, quote, unforgivable that Hildred enjoys torturing the Doctor during interrogation. The Doctor, Terence writes, found that the prospect of execution concentrated his mind wonderfully. Of course, why would you ever mess with Robert Holmes's dialogue in the first place? His two-hander scenes just sizzle. Sizzle. And Terence captures that, mostly by just retelling the dialogue, with the occasional dip into the Doctor's thought processes. Turn it off! Twiddledee. I must apologize for my subordinate. He lets his enthusiasm run away with it. I see. The hot and cold technique. We are simply seekers of the truth, and we haven't got much time. Chancellor Goth has ordered your immediate trial. I'd like to help you. How about a signed confession? That will help. I hate going into court without possessing the full facts. Motive, for instance. Now, that's a sensible question. Why should anyone want to assassinate a retiring president? A personal grudge? I never met him! I know! I've seen your biog. And you still think I did it? I think you're going to be executed for it. They are preparing the vaporization chamber now. You have about three hours to live, Doctor. What? Well, that's monstrous. Vaporization without representation is against the Constitution. You are an embarrassment. You realize I've been framed, don't you? Framed? Yes, framed. To an earth expression, it means that someone's got a great deal of trouble to get me into this mess. Why did you come back here? To try and save the President's life. If you remember, I left a note for you. Yes? Which presumably you did nothing about. All that I could. So you knew the President was going to be assassinated. In a way, I experienced it. Now, Terence did make some small changes to that scene in Chapter 4, but even the changes are instructive. The line the Doctor snarled in the clip you just heard, I never met him, is delivered with a smile in the book, and Hildred is present for the entire scene on TV. In the book, the cast line dismisses him very early on, so the scene becomes a two-hander, without the distraction of actor Derek Seaton standing there immobile the whole time. That being said, Terence does make some changes to the Doctor's trial at the end of Chapter 4. What David Maloney portrayed as a montage of bits of witness testimony, Terence condenses, devoting a paragraph each to several different witnesses. And in the book, the Doctor exercises his right to cross-examine one witness, which didn't happen on TV. I like Terence's embellishment better than the TV focus on Hildred's rather dull testimony. Forgive the critique of someone who does this sort of thing for a living. Among other minor changes, Terence alters the dialogue to explain what the word jurist means, Barusa now says an expert in jurisprudence, and gives Barusa a look of malicious enjoyment as he supports the doctor's candidacy for presidency as a means of avoiding trial. Although, of course, news broke this week that Donald Trump is looking to do the same thing to get out of his legal woes. And to quote my friend Michael Lee in a Facebook thread, I hate that every time I see a story about Trump with a headline like this, I fear that he has stolen his strategy from the Doctor and Deadly Assassin. Chapter 5 is brief, only eight pages long, but still full of memorable exchanges. 
mostly between the Doctor and Spandrel, and culminating in the shock reveal of a dead body, shrunken down to the size of a doll by the Master's tissue compression eliminator, its first use in the show on TV in almost six years, although the gap between Terror of the Autons and the Deadly Assassin does seem like decades. The most noteworthy change is that Terrence removes the Holmes reference to the Shabagans and replaces the TV word hooliganism with the more vanilla-sounding vandalism. Chapter 6 is also brief, again only eight pages long, but is again full of memorable exchanges, including the murder of Runcible. You know, for a story about the regeneration cycle, it's interesting that all of the many Time Lords who die in the story, nobody regenerates. And the introduction of the Matrix, the key hard sci-fi concept in this season 14 story, nothing is missing from TV, even eight pages, but Terence adds an outraged, spluttering reaction from Engen after the Doctor attacks Time Lord technology as, quote, prehistoric, a reaction I'm sure Eric Chitty would have loved to have delivered on TV. Here in the middle chapters, though, you'll notice Terence has dropped a lot of the clever and witty descriptions of Time Lord life. 35 of the book's 116 pages were reserved for Part 1, and you can do the math to figure out that leaves less than 30 pages apiece for Parts 2 through 4. So when Artron Energy is mentioned on page 70, the first of its many entries in the Doctor Who canon, Terence has no time or interest in explaining, or perhaps writing in 1977, he didn't realize how important that term would later come to be. The word Artron is spoken a total of three times during the TV serial, but Terence removes the other two iterations from the book. The early scenes of the Doctors being pursued in the Matrix, end of Chapter 6, beginning of Chapter 7, also fly by, although in this instance these short, breathless passages help convey the Doctor's disorientation at being trapped in someone else's mindscape. Terence in Chapter 7 explains something I'd never really questioned, why it's Goth's mindscape inside the Matrix and not the Master's own. Quote, the Master's bodily degeneration was too far advanced for him to undergo the physical strain involved in entering the Matrix. In any case, he had always preferred to find others to endure such risks. And then a few pages later, quote, The trouble with working through others was that you were powerless to correct their bungling. The Part 3 material takes up a scant 20 pages, the better part of chapters 7 and 8. This is slimmed down from the extravagant length of the Part 1 material, but that's because Part 3 on TV had little dialogue, mostly filmed on location, a silent cat-and-mouse chase between the Doctor and his hidden pursuer. This is challenging material to adapt because the TV series is propelled by Maloney's lush visuals and the location footage, and an astonishingly focused and physical performance by Tom Baker, considering that just a year from now on TV, He'll be playing up the comedy much more heavily, and spending 15% of his time on set fondling the TARDIS console in increasingly comical ways. Dix finds his way into this material for the novelization by exploring the Doctor's and the Hunter's thought processes as they try to outfight each other. This material flies by, and can be read in literal minutes, but it's compulsively readable, and with a surprisingly poignant observation by the Doctor after the Hunter reveals himself to be Chancellor Goth. The Doctor sighed wearily, Terence writes on page 90. How like the Master to corrupt the highest and the noblest of the Time Lords to his evil purposes. Lines like, Goth surfaced with the savage fury of an attack shark, show that Terence is surprisingly adept at writing an action sequence. In chapter 9, the oh-so-Robert-Holmes line, you craven-hearted spineless poltroon, is preserved word for word. But two pages later, 
Terrence mocks Tom Baker's habit of waking up in mid-sentence by adding, quote, he realized he was rambling. However, Chapter 9, in which a lot more happens, including the resolution to the virtual reality Matrix segment of the story, the death of secondary villain Chancellor Goth, marking Bernard Horsfall's exit from Doctor Who, and the capture of the Master, does go by in very fast and choppy fashion. Terence doesn't add any explanations to TV lines that fans have been working into their fanfic, whether private or televised, such as Goth's explanation that he found the Master on Tursurus. Lots of explanations over the years since then as to what was Tursurus, including one from Stephen Moffat himself, but Terence doesn't find a way to tell us first. Terence also retains the TV story's reference to, quote, the old times, again without explaining just what those old times were like, but those would come to the fore during the Sylvester McCoy era, and then the new adventures, another one to two decades on. The one thing Terence does add to Chapter 9 is an extra line of dialogue in the book explaining why the retiring president wasn't naming Goth his successor, believing him to be too ambitious. The master's consumed with hatred. It is one great weakness. <laughs> weakness, Doctor. Hate is strength. Not in your case. You delay an execution to pull the wings off a fly. This time, Doctor, the execution will not be delayed. Castellan! I assure you, I am not nearly so infirm as I look. Now you! Bring me the sash of Rassilon. Oh yes, Doctor. Why else do you think I feigned death? When God failed me, it was necessary to use more direct means. But the sash is wasted on our dead friend, don't you think so? Bring it to me! Don't do it, Engin. A stupid remark, Doctor. Resistance is futile now. Don't give him the sash, Engin. I have suffered long enough from your stupid, stubborn interference in my designs. Now we are coming to the end of our conflict, Doctor. Why have you brought me here? As a scapegoat for the killing of the president. Who else but you, Doctor? So despicably good. So insufferably compassionate. I wanted you to die in ignominious shame and disgrace. Chapter 11 is called The Final Battle. And it is of sorts. It's the Doctor's confrontation with the Master over the Eye of Harmony and the Panopticon. This scene was basically imported wholesale into the 1996 TV movie, the one for which Terence had such memorable disdain when he wrote The Eight Doctors, the year after the TV movie came out. Of course, Deadly Assassin is not nearly as full of improbable, illogical events as was the TV movie script in Terence's eyes. This confrontation is simple, and Terence reduces it into a very short six-page chapter. Because the Part 3 material took up just 20 pages in the book, there's a little more room for Part 4, but the 30 pages allocated is still less than the time given to Part 1, and it shows. About half of Chapter 11 is the blank space in between many short single-paragraph sections. Terence doesn't remove any of the TV material, though, and he also restructures the Master's fall through the Panopticon floor, or, if you will, the Master's fall over the Reichenbach Falls. On TV, the Doctor shoves the Master several times, including once down a flight of stairs. A really impressive stunt fall, by the way. 
and then the master falls into a hole while trying to climb back upright. But in the book, Terence gives the master superhuman strength from his brief contacts with the Eye of Harmony. Page 118. Despairingly, the doctor realized how much contact with the Eye of Harmony had restored the master's strength. The scrawny limbs beneath his grip felt like coiled steel. With a savage heave, the master threw the doctor from him and bent to complete the uncoupling of the last energy coil. As his hands closed on the connection, the doctor scrabbled desperately across the floor and dragged him away. He pulled the master to his feet, and they grappled fiercely for a moment. Once again, the master's newfound strength came to his aid. He flung the doctor aside almost with ease, sprang back towards the monolith, and stumbled on a chunk of loose rubble. His foot twisted, and he fell helplessly backwards. Arms flailing, he pitched clear off the dais and into the spreading chasm in the panopticon floor. For a moment, the master clutched desperately at the edge of the chasm, hanging on by two claw-like hands. Then the masonry crumbled away beneath his grip, and he fell screaming to the depths below. By the way, I dare you to write a better paragraph than that one in terms of an action-adventure scene. Chapter 12 serves as the epilogue, and it's just four pages long. It does contain everything from the corresponding TV scenes, with Terence changing the odd word, like expedition on TV becomes dispatch in the book. The only thing he removes is one of my favorite bits of all. In the book, quote, the doctor had always hated farewells. Abruptly he said, well, goodbye to you both, and disappeared inside the TARDIS. That sort of abrupt departure may be a classic series Doctor trait, but it's not really a Tom Baker trait, and that means we lose the most adorable enunciation of the word goodbye ever heard on television. You know what I'm talking about. Goodbye, Scrandall. Goodbye, Doctor. Goodbye, Doctor. Oh, goodbye, Engie. Goodbye. Next time on Doctor Who Literature, going to be interesting. It's one of the most controversial episodes of the classic series. Widely considered one of the best ever, still number six all time in the year 2014 DWM survey, number four in the classic series, but also having taken a pounding for its racist attitudes and language and characters. Terence Dix may well have been aware of that in November 1977, because in writing what's otherwise one of his longer and more atmospheric books, he actually takes steps to blunt the racism. Well, some of it. It's a story so big and difficult that I need more than one guest to help me break it down. Next week, me and two longtime Doctor Who novelists will all sit down together and untangle the mysteries and unsavory elements of Doctor Who and the talons of Wang Chiang. Thank you for joining me on another episode of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. I'm Jason, your host and editor and producer. Special thanks to my special guest, Mark from Trap One. This podcast can be found on most of your podcast apps of choice. You can find all past episodes at anchor.fm slash Doctor Who Lit. It really helps if you rate five stars and subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels. That's DR Who Novels. On Twitter, using the hashtag Doctor Who Pilgrimage, that's DR Who Pilgrimage. And on email at Doctor Who Literature, that's DR Who Literature, at gmail.com. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, and suggestions. Thank you for listening, and whatever you do, keep turning the pages.